0: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka, that is me, but I am not gonna be spending much time talking to you on this episode. Instead, you're gonna hear from Jay Rosen, the NYU professor who's been on the show a couple different times, he's great. He sat down with Twitter CEO, Jack Dorsey this week. They talked for an hour and you're gonna hear that interview in a couple seconds. A Couple quick notes about this. Jay recorded this on his iPhone 5, so it's gonna sound a little bit different than the standard podcast audio quality you might be used to. It is still listenable though. You will enjoy it. You should also go read what Jay had to say about this interview himself. I assume it's over on his Press Think blog, but I'm sure if you Google Jay Rosen and Jack Dorsey, you will find Jay's blog entry about this. We're also putting up a full transcript of this interview over on Recode.net. All right, so you've got a transcript, you've got Jay's commentary about this, and you've got the audio itself, which you can hear now. Oh, one quick thing. Thanks to Joel Robbie, our engineer, who did a lot of work so you could hear this today. Okay, here we go. This is NYU's Jay Rosen interviewing Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter. You're sticking with the uh,
1: the five. Uh, yeah, I don't like to change much, uh, and that's not so great for technology. Yeah, I'm like one of those users who always like screams when you change something, and then half the time I hate it, and half the time I get to like it. What do you think of 280? Exactly that. I like. At first, I said. <laughs> I'm not going to do this. I'm going to voluntarily stick to 140 because I thought that was a great constraint and I thought it was unwise to change it. But now it became a little ridiculous to hold out because everybody else was using 280 when they needed to. So now I'm comfortable with it. It didn't, it didn't actually create any yeah. huge problems. Well, uh, we found that like when people are
2: just um, tweeting more as a, as a broadcast, yeah, it, on average tends to stay below one hundred and forty. Um yeah, which is very which has been great. But yeah. where it's where it's really been helpful is when people have a conversation. So replies do go above one forty. Yeah. And allows a little bit more nuance and a little bit more space
1: to have a discussion and discourse. Yeah. It's actually been very mm-hmm. successful for me in that sense because I often have views that need qualification and knowing Twitter the way I do and the kinds of reactions that you sometimes get if what you're saying sounds like something people have heard before they react to that yeah. and in order to say I'm not saying this I am saying that 280 actually makes a big difference yeah. what has been I have s- several questions <laughs> I want to ask you what has been your experience in uh, your listening tour especially with conservatives what have you learned Well,
2: first and foremost, we, at least I personally, have not tended to have conversations with many people in the more conservative end of the spectrum or Mm -hmm. right end of the spectrum. So goal number one was to say that we're here, be present, see the folks who I personally haven't talked to. And as an organization, we tend not to naturally lean towards. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know if there are any fundamentally different learnings that are different from like the conversations that we have with folks who are more on the left end of the spectrum Mm -hmm. more the liberal end of the spectrum or libertarian end of the spectrum wherever that lies so there there's a lot of questions as to why we make decisions the way we make them how the algorithms work uh, a lot of questions around timeline ranking Mm -hmm. um, and that changed three years ago there's a first first time we really applied machine learning to where people spent the majority of their time within the service mm-hmm. um, and some confusion about that I think there was a question as to why there haven't been a lot of conversations with people on the on the more conservative end of the spectrum in the past mm-hmm. um, there was a desire to have more, there was a desire to be able to have open feedback um, channel and I don't know, but always, always good conversations. We, we had some folks from the media in every one of these. We had some folks in politics, some folks in academia, mm-hmm. some technology folks,
1: and uh, pretty good. You say they're similar to quick conversations with people on the left side of the spectrum, but people on the left side of the spectrum aren't accusing Twitter of shadow banning their voices, are they? The people we talked to didn't really accuse us of shadow banning their voices. They didn't.
2: Um, they didn't they accuse you of bias against conservatives. They asked questions as to whether like, a bias within the company would translate into the service yeah. um, and into actions. But it was all questions rooted in, like, I follow this person, why am I not seeing their tweets in my timeline? Mm-hmm. The majority of questions I got about shadow banning and bias were either on Twitter or within the congressional hearing.
1: So public performances <coughs> where there was some external audience to perform for. Yeah. Why did you uh, go public with this generalization that people in Twitter are generally liberal or lean left and that's our culture, which I have no trouble believing is true. But why why did you start talking about that?
2: I think it's more and more important to
1: at least clarify
2: what our own bias leans towards Mm -hmm. um, and just express it. Um, I'd rather know what someone biases to rather than try to interpret through their actions. So we can say that and also have the freedom to evolve and change, then, um, at least people know it. And I think it allows us to remove that a little bit more from the, the work, but it has to be proven out in our actions as well. So, I mean, we have a lot of conservative leaning folks in the company as well. And to be honest, they don't feel, Safe to express their opinions at the company, mm. and they do feel silenced um, by just the general swirl of what they perceive to be the broader percentage of leanings within the company. Mm-hmm. And I don't, you know, I don't think that's fair or right. We we should make sure that everyone feels safe to express themselves within the company, no matter where they come from and what their background is. I mean. My dad was a Republican. We listened, like When I was growing up, what was on the radio all the time was Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity. Yeah. Um, so my mom was on the opposite end right. of the spectrum. And I read about that in another interview you did. Yeah, yeah, and I appreciate that. So, I And I always felt safe to challenge both of them, especially my dad. And uh, so it was, it was definitely a privilege. But if we're creating a culture that doesn't, enable people or empower people to speak up, we're not going to be able to do that for our service either.
1: I'm of two <coughs> minds on that. On the one hand, it's absolutely true that if, if you don't feel safe in speaking <coughs> out, then in effect you don't have free speech. I think That's true. And that's in, tremendously important for a company like Twitter. But it's also true that public life and, and participating in public debate involves risk. Mm-hmm. The most basic risk is that someone will criticize you. And do you ever feel like saying to your conservative employees, look, speak up, you might get criticized, but you have to have the courage to do that. We, we're not going to penalize you, but, but you are to some degree when you speak up in public or in, in a public culture of a company, you are Yes, vulnerable to criticism, vulnerable to reaction. That's part of public life. That's part of being a mature citizen. Do you ever say that back to them?
2: I mean, yeah, it's easier said than done. I mean, I know this for myself. I um, I was a kid that was very shy. I grew up with a speech impediment. It taught me not to speak at all and Mm. eventually got over that. And speaking up in a collection of 3000 people where you make an assumption that they potentially think differently than you or believe differently is hard yeah um, it does require sacrificing a lot of your ego and your intellect and being vulnerable for a minute and you know I, I think it like what are the best bridges to enable people to do that and i don't know if entering into a political debate is always the right first step mm-hmm. um, but um maybe but yeah i, I definitely encourage speaking up and having the courage to do so but one has to feel it maybe in a different context before they get more of that and i think it it just takes time but we have we have people who will be courageous and and speak up but i don't know it's uh
1: it's hard to do as any individual when i interviewed adam sharp who at the time was the head of news for twitter
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, he said something very interesting to me which was that uh we may, from the outside, uh, underestimate how passionate people on Twitter are about news, how much they love news, and how obsessed they are with the news.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Is that true? Is that, is that part of the culture at the company? Where does that come from? Oh, what do you mean in terms of um, just just us like, being obsessed? With yeah, the, the people who work there are are lovers of news. They are obsessed with it. They follow it. Obviously, they contribute to it through the company, the platform, uh, and they are especially tuned to the sort of the problems in the news system. That's what he was saying. Yeah,
2: I think so. I mean, I, we, you know, when we started the company, we built something that we wanted to use, and more and more people taught us what they wanted to use it for, and then what they wanted to use it for was to see what's happening, which is news, news and yeah. newsworthy, and whether it be, you know, a conversation between two people as being newsworthy to someone or, like, actual breaking news that is more global of nature, um, it is certainly now in our, our DNA, but I I do think it's a byproduct of what... Our real fundamental is, which is public conversation. I, entertainment is a byproduct of that. Like if if we if we lose sight of the fundamental that we're serving, which is you know enabling people to converse in public um, and discuss in public. Mm. Um, Why
1: do you see that as more fundamental than news? Because I don't see it that way.
2: Because we'd never know what is going to be newsworthy or not, and oftentimes we've seen simple conversations turn into something really meaningful mm-hmm. the most prominent that's top of mind immediately in this moment is there was an it professional in pakistan who was tweeting at 3:40 in the morning about helicopters over his apartment and five hours later we learned that that was the raid on osama bin laden, bin laden. i remember that yep and if we if we purely focus on um on news as as a as just the fundamental atomic unit, I think we become um, dependent upon news sources rather than seeing potentially everything as newsworthy to, to someone. Mm-hmm. And I also think if we, if we were to focus entirely just on news as the atomic unit, we wouldn't see as much discussion and debate and dialogue around what's happening as well. Yeah. So I, it's not that I don't think Twitter is about news and people don't use it to see what's happening and, and, and get their news, but there's got to be something that feeds up. And to me, it's that public conversation
1: hmm. aspect. See, I see it almost as the reverse. When I say, when I say news, though, I don't mean the news industry yeah. or, or uh, you know, the major providers new of news. No, noteworthy. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean news in the more fundamental sense of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, It could be what's happening in my life. It could be what's happening in my neighborhood. (laughs) It could be what's happening in the world, what happened today in congressional hearings. And the way I look at Twitter is that it's a part of the news system. It's Mm -hmm. a fundamental part of the news system. It's become part of the uh, infrastructure of the news system, which is why uh, anybody who pays attention to news closely knows that news usually breaks on Twitter uh, very often at the first notice you have of it is on Twitter. And I first like, became aware of that when with the plane crash in the Hudson, yeah. where you know I kind of knew it as an abstract thing, but seeing it happen, especially because I live in New York and I wasn't yeah. that far from the event itself. And so Twitter is fundamentally, it's part of the news system. You go there to find out what's happening. And what people naturally do, what they need to do to have a healthy democracy is of course, discuss the news. And so I see them as like complementary. Oh, and, absolutely, and compl- and equally and fundamental. They, and they cycle. Sometimes
2: those discussion become what's happening and become yeah. news as well.
1: Yeah.
2: And the, to your point around, um, I, Twitter was described in the past. I'm not sure who said it. Where it is as a, where the news gets its news?
1: Yeah, that's I, true too. I
2: yeah, think, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that people do feel free to discuss what's happening. It. It's not what what I appreciate about Twitter, is unlike in Instagram, it doesn't feel like a post. It feels like the start of a. It feels like a message. You know? So you and, want to increase that sense of flow rather than post, fluidity, right? Yeah, like we don't want to post and then stop. Like one of the one of the descriptions and labels that we had in the past, which I always despise, was microblogging.
1: Yeah, because you, I remember
2: that it, it it encourages behavior of post comment, 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 and Mm -hmm. it just feels such to be a dead end versus like message, 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 which is just this fluid reply and it could go anywhere. And I think that speaks to the fact that we don't have a social graph. We have a graph around interest. We we have people following you not because of the fact that you're in their address book, but because they're interested in what you have to say. Mm -hmm. And that the spectrum of what you have to say changes over time. And that fluidity is really important and isn't really captured in um, composing a post. It's like, this is what I think right now, and this is what I think right now, and let me clarify, and let me clarify, and this is what I think right yeah. now.
1: Yeah. I use it that way. <clears throat> and I try to benefit from that feature of Twitter and yeah. and the thread mechanism. Has that which, been helpful? Yeah. I like the fact that it started as a, a user convention
2: Everything on Twitter.
1: Yeah, everything starts that way, hashtag, right. The retweet. Totally. Um, right. I, I enjoy that part of, of Twitter. And I like the thread because it's it's a form of writing that um, is very demanding. Yeah. Um, so for me, it's it is what you say. It's intended to be part of conversation. It lends itself to conversation. I can always add to my thread if I want to which is really interesting. I, I could actually come back three weeks later and, and add something to it if I yeah. want to. But because of the risks that I, anybody with a public platform on Twitter has whenever they post, um, meaning if I say something stupid, it could like create a, a viral attack on me um, if it's really out of bounds, I'm always aware of that. And so even though it's supposed to be a flow and supposed to be a natural conversation, that's an artifice for me because I have to think like super carefully about everything I've How post. do we fix that? Like, how do we allow more space for
2: An edit button
1: would be one. <laughs> I know that's hard. I know there's all kinds of issues that, like that, but it's that's-
2: not, It's not that it's hard. It's a, If you ask a hundred different people what they intend by edit,
1: You'll get a hundred different answers. Well, I just mean fixing mistakes within, within a, a few a minutes. Window. Yeah, within a few minutes of of something. That and what about posted. longer? But that doesn't address
2: the clarification issue. Like you may say, you may tweet something stupid. Yeah, and not realize it after an uproar or outrage for a day.
1: Yeah. Well, there, I, I don't know how this is from an engineering point of view, but it would be interesting, and I would use it if I could clarify something that I that I mm-hmm. posted. Do you ever do that with your own tweets through a quote tweet? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I correct things that and way. Does that work? Um, it does, except that very often the follow-up, you know, doesn't spread the way that the original yeah. did. So yeah. I can use it that way. But somehow to indicate that something that is spreading has a further explanation to it or a qualification, I would I would probably use that. Even yeah. though it's only a handful of times when I need it. You need it. But when I need it, I need it a lot. Yeah. But as I said, for me, I don't really mind having to think through what I say, because I'm a college professor, I'm supposed to be careful and precise, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and actually, I consider it a good discipline, the fact that one wrong tweet could blow up your life, which is a fact, yeah. it's happened to many people. Yeah. It does make it risky, it means like, never tweet drunk, you know, all these basic things. But it's also a very good discipline for me yeah. I, as a writer. I yeah. like it. So let me ask you about something else. Uh, when I read through your testimony, which was a series of tweets, and some of the interviews... Which that, one? The one that you did recently. And- no, I did I did two
2: hearings, and there were two different series oh, of hmm. tweets. Those were just the openings, but they were different. One was focused on... Um, Election interference, and then the other was focus on
1: uh, bias. I think it was the second one Congress. Um, I felt like there's a tension in what you're trying to do. Um, And (laughs) what the tension is on the one hand, you're saying we are impartial, we're an impartial platform. When we uh, write our rules, when we enforce our rules, we're not trying to discriminate against this group or that group. Even though we, as individuals at Twitter and as a company with a culture, do lean this way, right? So that's those are like right there. Those are like two different motions. One is impartial. We are neutral. We're objective. Not neutral. Okay, you didn't use the word neutral. Mm. You don't want the word, word neutral, no. right? That's good. I wanted to figure that out. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I we're can describe we're, that, yeah. we're all right. I'll, I'll ask you about that in a second. So we're impartial but we're not saying that we don't have any points of view or that we don't have our own culture. We do. Correct. Okay. So that's, that's like one system. Another system that seemed to be coming through in that tweet thread is we are a company that contributes to the public square and to conversation in the public sphere. That's how we're used. That's how we're used, yeah. okay. We, we believe that many people See us as
2: a public square, and okay. use us as a public square. But you and don't then see have that expectations as... accordingly. Okay, they expect because we're used as a public square, they expect to have the same sort of, well, they have the same sort of expectations they would have of a public square
1: like Bryant Park. Okay, so my question is, why aren't the values of Twitter what it takes to have a healthy public sphere?
2: I guess it depends on what you mean by value. Like we value health in dialogue so that is our singular objective right mm-hmm. now is to increase the health of how people participate in our public square Not, I, I think it does benefit to get into neutrality versus impartiality.
1: yeah let's let's do that like
2: mm-hmm. a, a lot of people have asked us you know are you a public utility and Right. Uh, are you a neutral communications platform,
1: like the electric company or yeah. something like that, yeah. or,
2: or AT and T? Yeah. A neutral communications platform. Presumably, you you know pick up the phone, you call your friend, you call your father, you call your mother.
1: Right. It doesn't care who you're calling or
2: presumably what you're doing. they do yeah. not care about the content yeah. whatsoever because the other person picked up the phone or multiple. You have a group conference call. They all decided to participate in that thing. And they should be completely neutral to whatever happens on that pipe mm-hmm. and through that pipe. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people have taken that neutrality and, and then said, well, we should also be that because we are like the Internet. Yeah, uh, pipes. Pipes. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, upon further reflection, we are being used more like what you would find in Washington Square Park.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Like you walk into Washington Square Park and there's a bunch of people who, when I walk in, there's a bunch of people there who are not expecting me to walk in and aren't expecting me to do the things that I intend to do
0: Mm -hmm.
2: and might see it out of the corner of their eye and might come over and listen or interact or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, in that public square, there's all these things that happen and some are amazing and some are stupid and some are silly and some are... Really terrible. There's a guy in the corner with a megaphone, like broadcasting his thoughts. And then he starts. He recognizes you and he says, "Jay, like get the hell over here. You, you're a terrible person, and I hate you, and mm. all these other things." And it's completely directed at you. Mm. And at that point, people recognize it and they tell him to stop. Or the park stewards or police come over and say, "There's a warning." And you know, if you keep attacking this one person who doesn't want it um, and is not even paying attention to you, then you're out. So that action right there was not neutrality, it was being impartial to the conduct and and with an eye towards more of the collective, with an eye towards like, we need to make Washington Square Park something that people actually want to be at and recognize that there's going to be people who choose unhealthy behaviors and we're going to help, we're, we're going to at least demonstrate what is not healthy and what could be healthier. So I I do believe health is a value that we've chosen to make a singular objective and we mm-hmm. value health in public conversation. But in order to do it correctly, we need to do it with a principle of impartiality, which means that we're not going to do it on bias, on the, on the basis of bias or prejudice or favoring one account over another for improper reasons. Yeah. And... Where we have failed in that is to be transparent around how we write our rules and how we enforce them. And where we've also failed in the past is is being open with our mistakes and then correcting them. Mm Because we're not always going to see outcomes of impartiality, even though that is our intent. Mm -hmm. Um, We will see outcomes that are not impartial Mm -hmm. and that may favor one account over another or inject bias, whether it be through the training set that was used to train our algorithm or a human operator that had to make a judgment call and made it incorrectly. So I think it's really important we clarify, we do value health in this thing that people see as a public square. We are going to make it our objective to increase the collective health. We realize not everyone is going to choose health in the short term, Mm -hmm. but we want to demonstrate by choosing healthy conduct, we can further amplify your reach. Mm -hmm. But if you don't, it's only your earned audience. And if you're harassing people, then we're going to ask you to leave.
1: What do you think this principle of health that you just articulated mm, replaces in your old thing? If this is the new thing, what did you have in that place before? I I think we were just addressing the symptoms that we were seeing on the surface. Just sort of going from problem to problem without really having a coherent point of view.
2: or a coherent, cohesive framework to link them all yeah. together. Like we, we saw, you know, we saw abuse. We went after abuse. We yeah, saw we, misinformation. We, we went a little bit after right. that. It's and, fighting fires. But they're all yeah. tied together. And yeah. this is what um, the Cortico folks and Deb Roy asked us about a year and a half ago now, which is like, what if you can measure health of conversation? Yeah. I said, how would you do that? And he said, well, first you need to figure out what the indicators of health are. I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, your, your body has an indicator of health and system imbalance, which is your temperature. 98.6 means more or less your system's in balance. If it's above or below, then something's out of whack and something out of balance. And in order to, we recognize that's an indicator of health, but we also need to measure it. So we needed to invent thermometers to measure it. Then we get a metric out mm. and then we can see how that metric trends over time. And as we deploy solutions like, hot water with lemon or when you take wine what happens with that that trend and then based on those experiences we can say that if you want to be healthy then you drink more water with hot water with lemon and less wine during that time of imbalance so he came up with four which are shared attention and implicit in all these indicators is that more of them in is healthier. So Mm -hmm. shared attention, like what percentage of the conversation is focused on the same things rather than Mm -hmm. being disparate things. Mm -hmm. Shared reality, which is what percentage of the conversation is sharing the same facts. Mm -hmm. Not that they're true or not, Mm -hmm. but this percentage of the conversation or accounts or people believe the world is round and this percentage believe it's flat. And the implied assumption there is that the more of us that are sharing the same facts, the healthier the conversation will be. Yeah, but the world is round. Well, yes, but, and the, and the, predominant, the predominant percentage believes that that is factual. Mm-hmm. There are other people who share different facts, and that's mm-hmm. just one crazy but illustrative yeah, that's example. A, that's,
1: that's a rabbit hole there.
2: It's just an example. Yeah. Uh, but there are, you know, religion. Yeah, I sure. believe in this fact to be fact, and I believe this to be factual. Right. And and those aren't necessarily shared. So, and then the third one being receptivity, the participants are they receptive or are they creating toxic action? And then fourth and finally is variety of perspective. Are we mm. feeding a filter bubble or echo chamber, or are we actually seeing divergent? Yes. Yeah. Not
1: diverse, but divergent views. So that, that's that's the <clears throat> beginning of the direction that I would like to see you go in. It's fundamentally compatible with what you're what you're saying, but the way I would say it is, Twitter contributes to, is part of, wants to be a key part of a healthy public sphere. Mm-hmm. And- Which um, we've committed to. Yes, okay, you've committed to that already. And in order to have a healthy public sphere, certain things have to be- True. Certain things have to be uh, had. Or or increased? Yes, and we are in the we are continually in the process of learning what the requirements of a healthy public sphere are. We know what some of them are, and we are designing our systems and enforcing our rules accordingly. Mm -hmm. And we are continually learning what it really takes to have a healthy public sphere in a global connected society and Mm -hmm. a platform that reaches everywhere in the world, and therefore. We don't apologize for changing our policies a lot and evolving them because we nobody knows everything about this problem. And furthermore, because we're always learning, we have to learn in a very public way, yeah. and therefore we are committed to, yes, transparency as an abstraction, but in practice it means we have to share a lot more data, we have to share our thinking, we have to share the kind of criticism we're getting, and we may have to build systems to get better criticism. Yeah. That's the way I would state it. And that is is—it's it, important because it means that you're not saying anything goes. You're not saying you're indifferent to what happens on the platform. You're saying we are standing up for these values and we're continually learning what they require of us. And if you violate the requirements of a healthy public sphere, we will take action against you. And one of the things that obviously you have to recognize, and I'm sure you're recognizing it more and more, is that there are bad actors who don't actually want there to be a healthy public sphere. They want it to be distorted. They want it to, um, they want it to break down. They even might want to destroy the institutions of a, a public sphere because in the wreckage of those institutions, they, a lot of energy is released, a lot of fury and controversy, and you can power a political movement with that.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with all that. Did you read my health? Read? Uh, I think I did. Because okay. we said, I mean, we, we committed yeah, you, to you said, all the things you, you said. I know you committed to it, right. Um, yeah. but it, it is, like, we we do say a lot, and we we need to prove it through the work. But yeah. ultimately, we'll have updates to that, obviously, as well. But we we believe, like, those health indicators shouldn't be owned by us. They should be designed and defined by a third party. Mm-hmm. We should publish to them. Mm-hmm. And we should be held accountable to them.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: third party in meaning? Third party being, like... Cortical MIT Social Labs, for example, the researchers that we're working with through our RFP process to define what these indicators are. I don't know, but we we recognize we're not the only one serving a public square, public conversation, that there are multiple folks, including journalists and publications like the New York Times or the National Review or whoever, and maybe they could also u- utilize these indicators to determine health of the discussion around their work or even measure the efficacy of their, their work as a contribution, as an impact to the um, to the public conversation.
1: What about having public editor or public editors, plural? In, internally? No, like like a Margaret Sullivan. Somebody who's empowered to um, listen to complaints that users are having, yeah. get answers from the company. They are not beholden to the company, yeah. uh, but they are like ombudsmen. Yeah. And that's a way of showing that there's somebody that you can talk to when you think something is amiss. Yeah. Right? And they push for more transparency. They push for answers on behalf of the users. Yeah, I like the idea of it. Who is empowered to work on behalf of the users at Twitter everybody everyone I mean in terms of the direct
2: the the most direct contribution it's engineers and product and design folks but um, we have a research team that is constantly having conversations with people all around the world that use our surface and people who don't use it asking mm-hmm. them why we have a, we're about to hire a social scientist uh, as well to help us understand more of our Impact not within the service alone, but also off-platform. This is another dimension that we're adding: is the ramifications of what people do on Twitter and how they translate off, uh, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it really depends on what you mean. But like we, our most front-line to actual people that we serve is our research team, our customer support team, and our sales team. Yeah, they they have the conversations on the on
1: a daily basis, um, I guess what I meant is, I I see people sometimes explode in frustration, and and I'm sure you've seen this too, and they say, hey Jack, would you fix, right? And they're trying to talk to the top of the company, which isn't really a very practical way of getting their concerns registered and acted upon, right? And so, you need a system for that. That's sort of like immediate flare-ups. Then it seems to me you have another listening project, which would be sort of medium-term, things that like, how's the 280 going, right? It's a medium-term yeah. concern. Uh, and then you have these longer-term issues, like the ones you're talking about, uh, of how do people follow conversation, how do I, how do we yeah. make the platform more topic-focused, yep. things like that. But I don't know who, if I have something <laughs> like I think is wrong with Twitter, I don't know where to go, and I'm a you know, pretty experienced user. Yeah, tweeting it usually. I mean, like we,
2: the, the amount of tweets we send internally as look at what people are saying about this or this feature or this is really topical or this is fair critique is pretty, yeah. pretty immense. Like our, our leadership team alone, like we're, we have a private DM um, that we coordinate almost everything that we do around and um, we're constantly sending tweets that we find that are Critiques of us, or like there was a really good critique sent yesterday around the um, the rank timeline, mm-hmm. and how um, uh, Sarah Ken- Kenzer from yeah. St. Louis, Louis yeah, from yeah, um, you're from there. Right. She sent a tweet about she turned the switch off uh, the ranks. I saw that, yeah, and she, she saw a bunch of uh, things uh, that tweets that she didn't from see. things yeah. from people that she hadn't heard from in weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so we pass that around, and like we. We need to look into why that was happening because that's not the intention of the ranking. It's it should be focused on like if this person is extremely relevant within the moment and uh, relevant to the viewer, it should be at the top of the timeline. So these are all signals that we use. Um, so who's responsible for explaining that? <clears throat> our engineering team, ultimately designing you know the home timeline experience and the algorithms behind it. But who's in charge of explaining it through users? It really depends. I mean I, I would like more of our employees to be more conversational on mm-hmm. our service yeah. on, a, on a regular basis. I, I want to be a really open company where we're just having conversations nonstop about our work we We tried another step with this when we were uh, we've been playing with the idea of what presence means on Twitter and uh, also playing with threading mm-hmm. within Twitter as well, both with the desire to incentivize more. Conversation and ultimately healthier conversation. So if, uh, you know, people get a lot, like Zenup is someone who says, like Twitter is all about conversation and like the amount of work I have to do to follow replies and to understand who's replying to what and this tweet goes here and this tweet goes here is like ridiculous and yeah. you taking a bunch of time away from me. So it's really under that initiative of like, let's better organize how people are utilizing this so that we
1: Make Twitter feel more conversational, and what does presence have to do with it? Why do you use the term presence?
2: Presence is like it's, uh, it, you know, it's that um, it's it's basically I'm online, I'm here, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and then there's there's been a, a a really amazing kind of organic thing that's come out of uh, Black Twitter, which is hashtag on here, mm. um, to describe just experiences that are happening right now, or. Contextualize the experiences happening on Twitter itself, mm-hmm. and um, we've been playing internally, and we shared some screenshots of what if, of course, if you give permission, what if uh, you see a green dot next to my name, seeing that like that means that, that I'm, I'm active nine nine on Twitter nine. right yeah. now, and like you could reach out and talk with me right now, or tweet right. at me right now, or if I if you tweet, I might be more likely to see it, but just that sense of like. I might Jack is use over that. there looking. And yeah, like, I might
1: use that sometimes. Like, it's who's up. Yeah, <laughs> you right. who's up and who's open yeah. to being yeah. communicated with.
2: Yeah, so yeah. it kind of goes back to our early days of, like, a lot of Twitter came from, like, you know, the AOL instant messenger status. Yeah. Um, and just extracting that into an entire product. Yeah. But the thing that we lost was the available um. Right. Signal. And it's interesting. The other thing that we're noticing Which is, is that
1: messaging systems have that. Yeah, yeah.
2: The other thing we're noticing is that I don't know if you've noticed this, but the dis- we have the at name mm-hmm. and then we have the display name. Yes. And people have been changing their display name because we yeah, increased I saw the size. That. Yeah. They they do it for a lot of reasons, like uh, you know. Um, We see a lot of resist in it. We see Xs.
1: I would never do that. I've noticed (laughs) it. I would never in a zillion years do that. A lot of the people who think we're shadow banning them put an X in it. And you see
2: all sorts of things. But what's really interesting is people have started to put their status in it. Like, um, Uh you know, Jack in NYC or NYC Jack. And that's another, it's another opportunity. Like people are using this thing that wasn't designed for it, but they're telling us that they want to have some omnipresent status independent of the tweets that right. might be more ephemeral <laughs> um, so it's just interesting to look at these organic behaviors that emerge and whether they should be live features but a lot of people have been utilizing this on here of like you know I'm up right. like who's, who's around like right. black twitter is extremely conversational yeah. um, and, and very much used like we are a text messaging app Mm-hmm. But the whole world can join in, mm-hmm. and I just think that's so fascinating. Mm-hmm. And that—that that is why I say, like, news and entertainment are byproducts of conversation, and vice versa. Like, sometimes something is happening in the world, and I see it outside, like a plane landing in Hudson, and I have a conversation about it. And sometimes I have a conversation, and that becomes the, the news. Yeah,
1: I think it works both mm-hmm. ways. Yeah, yeah, and they feed each other, right? And I think conversation, when it's good, also can. Cause people to look for news. Yeah, yeah, which is really important. That's a good point. I want to ask you about one other thing, and then any questions you have for me, I'd be happy to answer. It would seem to me, if I were CEO of Twitter, that the nightmare scenario for me as an executive would be something like what's been happening in in Myanmar and other places, where false information gets communicated over over (laughs) a public platform, and it leads to essentially genocide or attacks on people. And you don't necessarily know it because it's really hard to keep track of what you know everything that's happening on a global platform. Does that keep you up at night? Is that how do you how do you like handle the very real possibility that your machine could be involved in something like that?
2: It definitely keeps me up, and <laughs> something I've been reflecting a lot more on in terms of um, just in the context of the hearings and the election interference, and like what I think is happening is much bigger than. The elections like there are as you said bad faith actors who are have an agenda to distract and divide and to confuse the election just happened to be a hook
1: yeah and, and they may a, not be evenly distributed
2: across the political spectrum absolutely or bad faith actors they may not be or they may not be on the spectrum at all yeah they may not be on the spectrum at all, right? Other than having an agenda just to to destroy public
1: conversation, to yeah. divide, oh, yeah, to divide, to divide. and to and to uh, yeah, and to polarize, yeah, yeah.
2: So and and just you know to cause uh, a number of issues that distract us from what we really need to focus on. And I you know I just um, the organizing principles of the past are not going to serve us in the same way that we need to organize to face the challenges that are present today. Like, you know, yeah. the the existential crisis is before us of economic inequality and the growing wealth gap, especially a racial wealth gap. The environment um, and the displacement of work from artificial intelligence. Those are things that an organizing principle of a nation state will not be able to solve. Mm-hmm. Because they're global, and mm-hmm. they face all of us. And so on the positive, like I, I believe this is where the Internet can really shine, is that we, we have a global organizing principle, and it is the Internet. Mm-hmm. And we have the ability to build layers, like Twitter, that ours is focused on conversation, a conversational layer of the Internet and want to make it accessible to everyone. And some people will... Utilize that for extremely negative things, and continue to look for opportunities to game us and We're never going to build a perfect antidote to that. We have to stay ten steps ahead constantly, and that means we need to be a lot more aware of how people are using the system and how people are intending to to game it and act faster i I think the the one advantage that we have against um, our peers is the fact that it is just completely open and completely fluid and completely public. Mm-hmm. I think when you have a join button or a subscribe button into a small community or a closed community, you develop a lot of these really isolated um, sort of bubbles where things can really fester quite quickly and it's also hard to see what's Mm -hmm. going on inside. But more important, and and that becomes a real issue when you have to be a small company that's trying to see as much as possible. But if everything is out on the open, then everyone in the world,
1: I see what you mean by an advantage can, yeah. can see it and, yeah. and
2: call it out and at least raise the issues so that we can identify it much faster. Yeah. So I, I do think we have an advantage of everything being on the surface. Same. and I would hate to lose that. yeah. And so that is not a something that like I rest on because we have definitely been gamed. Uh, yeah. and we have definitely been utilized to manipulate people. And I think that intention will only um, uh, grow. I, I think people will continue to find new ways. Of, like we we saw the Russian um, government do in 2016. We just disclosed evidence of um, folks in Iran taking on similar patterns, and yeah. I'm certain it'll continue to happen within the borders of this country and and countries around the world. But this is where like, the organizing principle of a nation-state doesn't work, because these are going to be global
1: issues yeah. and, and require global solutions. And we need to well, prioritize those global solutions. One first. point to recognize about that, Jack, is that if, if it's true that nation-states won't be able to solve these problems, but we have the Internet, which is global and does have the scale, that means that the companies that, um, that own that global scale become an, a, a very much like a world government. I mean, they, they be, and that's a problem because they don't have the same accountability that elected governments have. So that that yeah. that is a huge
2: issue. Yuval's new book, 21 Lessons, I'm, I'm halfway through right now, but he's exploring a lot of these, especially like, do we need a global world government? And his answer is no. Mm-hmm. What we need is, um, and I, I might be getting this right because I'm half, getting this wrong because I'm halfway through the chapter, but uh, what we need is a lot more of, um, this kind of open communication mm-hmm. around how these things interact, but also that the nation states prioritize, and even local governments like New York City, prioritize global concerns over the local concerns, mm-hmm. like the environment as mm-hmm. an example. Mm-hmm. Like what are we doing to reduce our own impact on on the environment? So I do believe that a lot of these services and ours, like. There's a growing concern of the power that we have over this public square that we're yeah. we're serving, and there's a natural distrust of it and a natural fear of it because people fear losing their voice, people fear losing their ability to participate, people fear losing their their job. Yeah, because they they hear Twitter and then they hear they go on the timeline, and they hear algorithm, and algorithm is displacement of work, and then. Five years down the line, where am I mm-hmm. you know and and so i I don't think we've done enough to address some of those fears, and I, I think the only way we can we can do it is more open seat, more openness and more transparency
1: well on that point, <clears throat> one of the things that I would really love to see Silicon Valley, you and your peers turn to is innovation on these kinds of questions like right? innovation in public explanation innovation in transparency our terms innovation in terms of service perfect example terms of service are completely opaque nobody knows what they're signing up for that requires innovation it's not Technology, right? Agreed. It's practice. Policies. Innovation in listening. Mm-hmm. Innovation in public criticism and feedback. Yeah. And it's amazing to me that in Silicon Valley, all these people who see themselves as disruptors and innovators, when it comes to, for example, explaining the company, they act like the same old PR merchants from the 1950s like absolutely zero innovation and nobody yeah. thinks that's a contradiction at all I do yeah I would so I would like to see like a lot more innovation in public communication and explanation because without it as you become these global forces if you don't have global accountability you're in for a I lot agree. of trouble I agree yeah I agree. what questions do you have for me as a user since 2008 if you could point
2: to one positive impact of our work and one negative impact of our
1: work? What would rise to the top in each? Well, for me, as a journalism professor, the most positive thing about Twitter is it allows me to practice journalism school extension, which means not just teaching the people who come to NYU and can afford the tuition and show up in my classes, yeah. but anyone who's interested. And allowing me to develop a constituency for my ideas that includes journalists for sure, but also lots of people who are concerned about the quality of journalism, Uh, and to do so without gatekeepers in a way that allows me to control my own message uh, has been amazing. The, the, The bad thing is the same thing that people much more vulnerable than I am complain about, which is that you know, anybody can walk over to me in Washington Square Park and scream how much they hate me at me. Right? And to reply to them would actually bring more of that upon me. And so, the sort of the openness to attack and the velocity and the velocity of it and the scale of it sometimes, yeah. like when when a big account decides that it's going to, you know, yeah. Yeah. unload on something that I said, usually in criticism of me being part of the liberal media, which I'm not, but they think i am um that which again i only experience a fraction of it compared to other people uh who are much more vulnerable than i have and i and i'm a privileged character i have a blue check next to my name i have tenure at nyu so i have all these protections yeah. but uh that would be the the thing that dissatisfies me the yeah. most along with some opacity in some of the changes that you introduced that really bothers me like what is the algorithm doing to my feed? I don't yeah. actually know. I I don't, and I don't know where to go to find out.
2: Well, I mean, that's, that's another fascinating area of research as well. Is like the algorithm doesn't know either sometimes. Yes, exactly. Like it is, there's, there's this research field in AI um, around explainability. Mm-hmm. And the intention is um, to encourage uh, more functionality that allows especially deep learning algorithms to explain the criteria, the decision-making criteria they're using. Because mm. right now- That's a big issue. They can't. Big problem. So if you don't know why a decision is being made right. by an algorithm- and you literally don't know what you're doing. And we're moving more and more of our dis- our decisions to it. Like I'm wearing an Apple watch it tells me to stand every now and then. and Like I have offloaded a decision around my physical health to this thing, and if it can't tell me why it's making that right. at the particular point, I know that it happens 10 minutes, to the top of the hour but that may change over time and that may impact something in a fundamental way that i can't predict so
0: it's like new
1: frontiers in opacity yeah
0: thanks again to jay rosen for talking to jack dorsey on the record for an hour thanks again to jay rosen for letting us bring that interview to you for free you're welcome again if you like this podcast Tell someone else about it. This is the first time you're listening to this podcast. Go ahead and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Thanks again to Joel Robbie who edits this show, and to my producers, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. This is Recode Media. We will see you next week.